from the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio. This is In Black America. He arrived uh, in the early evening, just was getting dark, checked in, and the, 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 the uh, motel clerk, of course, uh, remembered him and, and uh, had some impressions of him. But then he went straight to his room, and as far as anyone knows, he stayed in his room the rest of the night. So there wasn't much opportunity for the other guests to see him. It wasn't one of these things where they had a breakfast room and where James Earl Ray showed up and there might have been a dozen people in the breakfast room. Nothing like that. There was, at least as far as I know, there was no one else uh, at that motel. It's called the New Rebel Motel. No one else who had any uh, recollection of having seen Ray there. Joseph Rosenblum, author of Redemption, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Last 31 Hours, published by Beacon Press. As America celebrated the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., little was known about the last 31 hours of his life. We all know about I've Been to the Mountaintop speech and why he and SCLC had returned to Memphis, Tennessee, but few details were known about the hours leading up to that fateful night on April 4, 1968. Bloom's book, Redemption, traces King's movements and his thoughts during that period. Returning to Memphis between 2006 and 2014, Bloom spoke of two dozen people connected to the events of April 3rd and 4th, 1968. Also, he dug into the King archives, the hearing transcripts of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and records from the Memphis Police Department. Returning to Memphis was more than supporting the sanitation workers. It was also about King's Poor People's Campaign. I'm Johnny O'Henson Jr. and welcome to another edition of In Black America. On this week's program, Redemption, Martin Luther King Jr. Last 31 Hours Part 2 with author Joseph Rosenblum in Black America. Some people said he had almost a photographic memory. And also, he would rework some of the same material. So, I mean, a guy like him who's speaking constantly, he couldn't write a new speech every time he spoke. So a lot of the themes and a lot of the language were familiar to him. And uh, he, could, uh, he could do that. He could stand up and uh, he could speak for uh, hours and uh, speak very powerfully and very, uh, and, 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 and very uh, engagingly for a long time without notes. And that's what happened that night. Uh, I don't know. You said you heard that speech. It's, a, it's an eloquent speech. Right. Um, it, it, and, and one can wonder if it would be as well-remembered as it is, it's called the mountaintop speech. Exactly. If it hadn't been killed the next day, but I, I think that it might well have been, perhaps not as well remembered. But it, because aspects of that speech were really were quite extraordinary, I think it would have been remembered anyway. When Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his aide boarded Eastern Airline Flight 381 on the morning of Wednesday, April 3, 1968, to Memphis, Tennessee, a lot was on his mind. As the plane was about to take off the first time, there was a bomb threat. Six days earlier, a march he led in Memphis to support the city's sanitation workers turned into a riot, and his reputation was on the line. Also, he was facing dissent even within the civil rights movement and among his own staff at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and his poor people's campaign was lacking progress. In his book, Redemption, Author Joseph Rosenblum relived those last 31 hours from the time he landed in Memphis to 6.01 p.m. on Thursday night at the Lorraine Motel when he was assassinated. 
Rosenblum spent several years backtracking King movements to give readers a new perspective of what those final hours were like. On today's program, we conclude our conversation with Joseph Rosenblum. It was obvious the crowd didn't want him to speak. They wanted Dr. King to speak. So then Dr. King uh, readily agreed, and he did go to Mason Temple and deliver the speech. You talk about James Earl Ray in the book, and it seems like he was an accident waiting to happen, considering that most of his family members had criminal records. Yes. So his family was rife with crime, and um, he grew up in a very dysfunctional family. It's uh, hard to imagine a worse uh, worse conditions than he uh, yeah. than he had, and um, he uh, was kind of kind of as a kid he was uh, persecuted in school. He dropped out of school in the ninth grade, and so he had a, a lot going against him. And he did, then he he became a he tried a few jobs and didn't go well. He was in the army and he got essentially kicked out of the army. So he was kind of—he was essentially a loser, long rap uh, sheet, and um, so yeah, that's right. His uh, beginnings uh, certainly did not uh, foreshadow a, uh, a particularly uh, a, a particularly bright future for him. I also found it interesting that the prior police chief in the fifties, when King used to visit Memphis, uh, lended security for Dr. King, but the police chief in '68 wasn't that concerned about his protection, only the surveillance of him when he was in the city. Yeah, that's, that's right. Uh, the, the, the predecessor, the, the guy who was um, the police director in 68, is a guy named Frank Holloman. Holloman, right. His predecessor is a guy named Claude Armour, the police uh, chief. And uh, Dr. King was in Memphis in 1966. Briefly, he was, that was when he went to Mississippi to support James Meredith's March Against Fear. Mm-hmm. And... During that visit in 1966, Claude Armour said, "Well, we're going to protect uh, Dr. King. We, we're, uh, I, if anything happens to Dr. King while he's here, he told his security detail that he assigned to protect. Uh, then I'm, then you're going to be handing in your badge. That's how determined he was to protect Dr. King. And they, he did have a, a large security detail of African American officers who protected him. There's something like uh, I think there's like eight of them or something like that." Mm-hmm. And uh, by contrast, when Dr. King came to Memphis in 1968, on his first two visits, there was no police protection for him. And uh, then on his last visit, on April the 3rd and 4th, there was police protection only for about eight hours. Eight hours, right. On the 3rd, and then it was discontinued, so there was no protection for him on the 4th. After and I think 5 the reason, o'clock, right. That's right. And I think the reason was they, it was indifference. Uh, the... Uh, Holloman and the other uh, top uh, people in the police department and just didn't care that much about King's safety. They figured, well, he could fend for himself, and uh, and, uh, and, they, and they didn't ha- assign a high priority to his security. Yeah, sorry to say that Holloman was from the J. Edgar Hoover School of, I guess, policing. <laughs> well, he had uh, he had been a top official at the FBI, right? And um, Hoover believed. Um, first of all, you may be familiar with the whole smear campaign exactly that the fbi had had undertaken against dr king for years and also hoover very much believed in um in covert uh, in, in covert uh, uh monitoring of of uh, of people uh, such as dr king surveillance and um holloman adopted that 
approach to uh, law enforcement as well. And he, when he arrived in Memphis, he, he, he established a, a, a department for that. And that's the way he handled the visit of Dr. King. There were two African-American officers who were assigned to surveillance. And then, as I described a moment ago, not much emphasis on security. Whatever happened to the injunction? The injunction was eventually lifted, but the judge who had initially issued the injunction imposed some restrictions. Was that Judge that were, Brown? No, that was Judge mm-hmm. Bailey Brown, okay. the U.S. District Court judge in Memphis. He imposed some uh, some restrictions, and Dr. King agreed to those restrictions um, that uh, were intended to minimize the chance that the next march would uh, turn violent. I found it interesting, and I was trying to, you know, connect the dots when you began talking about James L. Ray and the new Rebel Motel, how he was able to maneuver in and out of that place with not a lot of notice by the other guests. Yeah, so he arrived uh, in the early evening, just as getting dark, and mm-hmm. checked in, and the the, whole, the uh, motel clerk, of course, uh, remembered him and and uh, had some impressions of him. But then he went straight to his room, and as far as anyone knows, he stayed in his room the rest of the night. So there wasn't much opportunity for the other guests to see him. It wasn't one of these things where they had a breakfast room and where James O'Reilly showed up, and there might have been a dozen people in the breakfast room. Right. Nothing like that. So you're right. There was, at least as far as I know, there was no one else uh, at that motel that's called the New Rebel Motel, no one else who had any uh, recollection of having seen Ray there. When you were doing your research, were there any aha moments? There were several. Um, one we've already discussed, and that was the um, the end of police security after uh, eight hours on that uh, April 3rd. Uh, that, I hadn't seen that anywhere else. I think I may have been the first to re- reveal that. Um, I hadn't seen it either. That's why yeah, I was surprised. That's one thing. Another thing uh, that surprised me was um, how far behind schedule the uh, SCLC was in organizing the Poor People's Campaign. Mm-hmm. They uh, were trying to recruit poor people as volunteers to uh, come to Washington and join Dr. King in protests, and they were going to demand extensive federal legislation to end poverty in America. And that's an enormous uh, logistical task to uh, recruit all those people, thousands of poor people. And then all they needed to raise money because the costs were going to be considerable. Uh, they were going to have to transport people to uh, Washington, and then uh, they were going to have to uh, house them, uh, pay for food, and uh, so it meant a lot of money. And they were the uh, fundraising and the recruiting was going very slowly. And uh, that had been very that had been mentioned in passing in other places, but I managed to get some documents that showed uh, really uh, what a um, uh, really how far they had to go before they would have their act together to uh, start the Poor People's Campaign. If you're just joining us, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr., and you're listening to In Black America from KUT Radio. And we're speaking with Joseph Rosenblum, award-winning journalist and author of Redemption, Martin Luther King, Jr.'s Last 31 Hours. I found it interesting because I had never read it before, and I had gone to the Lorraine Motel but how the Lorraine Motel became the Lorraine Motel? Well, it was a, basically a derelict um, hotel mm-hmm. uh, when um, uh, Walter and Lorraine uh, uh, Bailey right. uh, bought it. And um, 
they uh, what they did more than anything else is they they they, they built an addition, a, a modern addition, which is uh, which is what you see there now, and um, and they uh, it was the place to go for uh, visiting African American uh, celebrities. Uh, so uh, the um, the musicians who came to Memphis, uh, uh, the BB Kings and the Louis Armstrongs, people like that, would stay. And this was in the uh, era of segregation. They would stay at the Lorraine, um, and they, they, they eventually attracted a, a reputation and a clientele that uh, made them the premier place for African Americans to stay in Memphis. Also found it interesting, once Dr. King was shot, all these policemen emerged from around the area, and no one saw James L. Ray at the uh, New Rebel Motel. Yeah, so what happened there is uh, he had parked his car. He had a, a Mustang. Um, a yellow Mustang? Yeah, how can you miss that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> yeah. It, would, it, would, it should have stood out, right? I mean, the yellow you, Mustang. You would think. <laughs> yeah, you would think. I mean, how many Mustangs are on that street? And uh, But what, was ha- what happened is uh, it was the tactical police force uh, that um, was uh, actually roaming the area that mm-hmm. night. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, during the strike, there were a lot of incidents and they so they had these tactical police that were on duty at, in the nighttime and they had stopped at a firehouse very near the motel very mm-hmm. near the Lorraine and uh, they were parked there and they were having a coffee break and uh, then uh, the shot rang out and uh, it just happened that uh, one of the African-Americans who was working surveillance and looking through uh, looking at the Lorraine saw uh, the whole thing unfold saw Dr. King drop uh, and uh, and then he alerted the uh, tactical policemen, and they, some of them, they just ran on foot toward the um, the, mo- the motel and got there pretty quickly. They might have been so distracted in trying to get to the to the motel that they may not have noticed much. But also, James O'Reilly sprinted out of the motel, uh, rushed to the. Uh, he was in such a hurry that he dropped uh, he dropped a whole bundle which had a, a, a rifle in it and some of his possessions. And uh, by the, uh, it's hard to know why some police officer didn't spot him but i think it's because they were so preoccupied with the with the uh, shot and trying to get as quickly as they could to the lorraine to see what was going on that they didn't and james O'Reilly was nobody's fool he probably didn't he didn't probably didn't peel out in that mustang he probably started pretty slowly and uh maybe he was waiting for the police to run by who knows but anyway he they didn't spot him at least nobody uh, re- reported having spotted him there on the street we all heard the recordings uh, from uh, the Free at Last uh, CD about Dr. King's uh, speech that night at, at Mason's Temple, but no one actually understood that this all was done off the cuff, temporaneously. There was nothing written down. That's right. He, he, uh, he spoke without notes, and uh, he really hadn't prepared anything. He wasn't even going to talk. Speak, right. We, we discussed a minute ago. But he could do that. He was, um, some people said he had almost a photographic memory. Mm-hmm. And also, he would rework some of the same material. So, I mean, a guy like him who's speaking constantly, he couldn't write a new speech every time he spoke. So a lot of the themes and a lot of the language were familiar to him. And uh, he, could, uh, he could do that. He could stand up and uh, he could speak for uh, hours and uh, speak very powerfully and very... Uh, and, 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 and very uh, engagingly for a long time without notes. 
and that's what happened that night. Uh, I don't know. You said you heard that speech. It's a, it's an eloquent speech. Right. Um, it, it, and, and one can wonder if it would be as well remembered as it is. It's called the mountaintop speech. Exactly. If it hadn't been killed the next day, but I, I think that it might well have been perhaps not as well remembered. But it, because aspects of that speech were really were quite extraordinary, I think it would have been remembered anyway. Right. We know about Ralph Abernathy. We know about Hosea Williams. We know about Jesse Jackson. We know about Andrew Young, James Orange. Who are some of the other aides and confidants around Dr. King at that time when he was in Memphis? Well, um, you've num- you've named a number. Of, I don't think you mentioned James Bevel. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, Bevel and and yeah. then uh, Kyle. Mr. Yeah. Kyle. Right. Well, there were some local people. There yes. was Billy Kyle's. Mm-hmm. He was a local minister, um, and but an old friend of of uh, Dr. King's. They went way back. They were both um, in that circle of Baptist ministers who would uh, meet at conferences and so on. And there was a guy named Ben Hooks, who's a distinguished uh, African American. Was chairman of the NAACP, right? He eventually um, yeah. became, became chairman of the NAACP, and um, he um, he then was a judge. He was. Um, uh, criminal, criminal court judge, yeah. Criminal right. court judge in Memphis, and he uh, he was even I say uh, I would guess that he was a better friend of King's. Uh, they were, as a matter of fact, he was on the SCLC board, the, mm-hmm. uh, and, and uh, he was a, a an, a, an advisor to King on a lot of issues. Particularly, he helped try to straighten out the SCLC's finances if uh, there was ever an issue there that uh, they needed help. And um, I did interview him, and uh, and he, but he didn't do much uh, during the. Uh, Events of uh, April, uh, March and April of 1968, because he was a judge and he didn't feel like it was proper for him to be visible, involving himself in uh, in any of the uh, uh, the campaign there or the uh, strike or, um, uh, or or anything related to Dr. King's visit. When I look at some of the pictures, the ones that are included in your book, but other pictures, very seldom do I see Dorothy Cotton. Yeah, I was uh, disappointed that I didn't have a photo of her. She arrived uh, with Dr. King and three of his aides um, at the Memphis airport on right. the morning of April 3rd. Matter of fact, she was sitting next to Dr. King on the uh, airplane. Exactly. And the photo that, that, that I have from uh, the, news, the afternoon newspaper. Yeah, after they got right? off the plane, because yeah. I said, well, where's Dorothy? <laughs> Good question. And uh, I don't know. Uh she, I guess uh, maybe she walked separately from them, but uh, I didn't have a good shot of her in Memphis. She also left. Uh, she left on the morning of exactly. April right. 4th. Yeah. So that's maybe she would have been up. There's that iconic photo mm. after uh, after King was shot, and he's um, he's, he's lying on the, on the floor of the balcony outside the motel, and there's that iconic shot of several of his aides pointing toward the rooming house where James O. Ray was. Of course, that's where they thought that they uh, heard the shot emerge from. But she's not in that photo either. Um, right. And, yeah. So I think I, when I interviewed her, I did, interv- I did talk to her. I think she said she was still out in her room, and um, she heard the shot, but maybe by the time she got up there, there was, uh, there was the photographer wasn't taking those photos. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I also found it interesting, I had never read it before, the last person that Dr. King spoke with, one would have thought it would have been one of his aides prior to him being shot, 
but it was actually the driver from the funeral home that was lending them a ride. Yeah, that's right. Um, the last words he heard were from the, the driver, and the driver, it was a chilly night. It exactly. Was turning, mm-hmm. It was turning cool. And the, uh, the driver said, uh, Dr. King, you, might, you don't have your coat. You better get your coat. It's cold out here. And those were the last words that uh, Dr. King heard. And then mo- the people in the parking lot, his aides thought he was playing around because they were joking prior to that. Yeah. So among, their, among the aides of Dr. King, and, and there was always a, a certain a kind of a, a lightheartedness. I think they probably mm-hmm. did that to, to break the tension of... Uh, right. Of uh, of uh, of all the danger they were in, and uh, so they were always joking and joshing each other and playing around. And uh, that's what Andrew Young told me. He said uh, he saw Dr. King drop, and he said, "Oh, he's just faking." And at first, that was his first thought, but it didn't take long at all to realize it wasn't a, it wasn't a fake. It was uh, it was very serious. A couple more questions, Mr. Rosenblum. I also found it interesting when you wrote about the AIDS and the toughness that they had to have and it wasn't uncommon for them to go about their daily life knowing that in, at any one given time uh, they could be killed. That's right. I mean, imagine what it would take to, uh, to drop everything mm-hmm. and join the uh, SCLC. First of all, you're not, um, you're, you're, you're not earning much. They paid right. uh, just almost uh, starvation wages. Uh, second, you're not building a career somewhere else. You're building a career as a civil rights leader, but where was you didn't know where that was going to lead. A third, as you said, there was uh, enormous danger, not, not only danger when you're demonstrating, because uh, who knew uh, how the police would respond. You probably know what happened on the, the bridge uh, from from Selma, Alabama. When Pettis the, uh, Bridge, right. Pettis Bridge and the, uh, the attacks by the... the uh, the police there, state uh, troopers, I think. And then also you were, you were in constant danger. Uh, you could uh, it may not even have been protesting, and just uh, if someone had, could very well have attacked you. So there's enormous risk, and that meant that the people who, who volunteered were both very dedicated. Mm-hmm. And second, that uh, they were independent and headstrong, because if they hadn't been independent and headstrong, they uh, they wouldn't have left a more conventional life right. to uh, run those risks and to make those sacrifices. I also found it interesting that very few autobiography actually focused or dealt with the pressures that it had on Coretta and the family, with him being on the road as often as he was and the death threats that, that took place. Yeah, it was a, a very tough life for her. Uh, the phone would ring at all hours, and uh, if you pick up the phone and it would be someone threatening Dr. King, a bomb was thrown on the front porch of their house in Montgomery. I exploded. It was lucky that, that uh, Coretta King and uh, then they had one child, that uh, they weren't right near the window there because they could have been badly hurt. The window mm-hmm. shattered. And that was kind of defined what her life was like. She, uh, she became the housewife and mother, mm-hmm. and, King, and, and King wanted that from her. He, um, that was kind of by a agreement that she would be a traditional wife and that he would be out on uh, that, that, that he would pursue his career as a minister or as a civil rights leader and he was away a lot he was uh, on the road uh, all, an awful lot of, t- of the time so she was alone uh, raising the kids and uh, without the support of a 
husband in, uh, I don't mean the financial support, I mean the emotional support of a husband who uh, could have helped in all kinds of ways. So that's right. It was, uh, it was a difficult life for her. Well, you did mention the financial support. He gave most of the money from the Noel prior to SCLC, and she finally convinced him to put $20,000 aside for the kids' education and to finally buy a house. Well, that's, uh, that's, I never actually discovered that he'd given any of the money to anyone or kept any of the money, except uh, I, I thought the impression I have is that uh, he he donated all the money to the civil okay. rights cause from the okay. Nobel Prize. But he did. He had been happy to rent. He was not interested mm-hmm. in material mm-hmm. possessions at all. But she finally prevailed on him that they needed a house, and then he agreed. But they bought a, a, quite a modest house. I saw the house in Atlanta. Right in Vine uh, City. Vine City, and it, right. it it has a two-car garage, but they don't, never filled more than one half of it because they never had more than one car. Right. And so they, they lived simply. They really did quite simply. I also found it interesting that once King left to go to Memphis, he informed his parents that he may die on that trip. Yeah, so he already had this sense that he was uh, destined to die early, that he, someone would kill him. And uh, he did. Uh, he did tell his parents that they should be prepared for him to die at any time. That's uh, that's how deep uh, mm-hmm. a dread he had of of uh, imminent death, and uh, and how open he was in discussing it. Uh, Mr. Rosenblum, what you want readers to come away with? Well, I hope if they look at my book and read my book, and I hope they will, I think it'll give them a a deeper appreciation for Dr. King. I think they will come to see how he was coping with uh, incredible, incredibly difficult uh, circumstances in the spring of 1968. And um, what courage he was showing in uh, trying to uh, confront those uh, uh, difficulties. And, uh, and, and at the same time, his commitment to doing something about the, the scourge of poverty in America, I, I don't think that story is as well known as it should have been. And and that's one theme of my book is, is, and I think you come to see poverty through Dr. King's eyes in a way that, that helps you understand why he believes that it was uh, so crucial for uh, America to address the issue of poverty far more uh, effectively and, uh, more, and more comprehensively than it was doing then. And by the way, I don't think it's done it all that much since then. So I think those are sort of the, two of the messages. And the last thing is I think just to the, uh, the emotion of, uh, and drama of, the, of what happened in uh, Memphis. I think uh, it, it, it was a very intense period for him. And I think just reading that and uh, feeling that, uh, that emotion and that drama is another thing that I hope people will take from this book. I understand. How has the critics been towards the book thus far? I've been very uh, pleased with the uh, reception. I, uh, it's almost... Um, it's humbling, really. So I, um, I've had um, almost universal approval from critics. Uh, I'm still waiting for the next round. <laughs> but uh, so far, I mean, you, you figure eventually you've got to take your lumps. But so far, I've been uh, really fortunate. People have greeted this, uh, this book with, uh, great, with tremendous enthusiasm. Joseph Rosenblum, author of Redemption, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Last 31 Hours, published by Beacon Press. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions as to future In Black America programs, email us at inblackamerica at kut.org. 
Also, let us know what radio station you heard us over. Remember to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear previous programs online at KUT.org. Until we have the opportunity again for technical producer David Alvarez, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. This has been a production of KUT Radio.